0: Love the art in yourself, not yourself in the art. That's a quote from Stanislavski, a Russian actor, director, acting teacher. Basically, it boils down to, it's not about you. There's a myth that people in the creative arts are incredibly selfish and self-centered. I've been an actor for over 30 years, and I have not found that to be true. For the most part, the people that I have worked with in front of the camera, behind the camera on stage, off stage are collaborative, intelligent, fascinating people. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's a chance for me and for you to learn more about those people. People who love the art in themselves, not themselves in the art. One of those people is David Dismalchin, actor, writer, producer, comic book creator, You probably know David from one of his blockbuster films like Blade Runner 2049 or The Dark Knight or either of the Ant-Man films. He's also in the upcoming Suicide Squad and Dune. The odds of being a successful actor are pretty slim. The odds of being a successful actor after having been through what David has been through are almost non-existent. I'm John Lister, and this is The Art in Yourself. On today's episode, my conversation with David Dismulsin.
1: David, my friend, how are you? Hi, man. It's so good to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited. Am I your? Am I your first? You are my very first guest. Yes. Wow. I'm honored, and um, I there's so many inappropriate. Jo- we have to be careful because there's lots of inappropriate joking that happens with us. But at the, the point of the matter is, all joking aside. I'm so thrilled and honored that you would want me to be your first, and I mean that sincerely, so thank you. It's really exciting. Well, thank you, and, and feel free to inappropriately joke all you want, and <laughs> feel free to
0: swear whatever you want. This is, this is not necessarily going to be G-rated, nor does it need to be. Fucking A right. Good. <laughs> Good. You're on the right page. I wanted to get started and uh, kind of go chronologically here to begin with. Um, I'm correct. You're from Kansas,
1: yes? That is correct. Yes. I was born in Pennsylvania, but when I was one, we moved to Kansas. Uh, I'm the youngest of four by a pretty significant stretch. My next nearest sibling is six years older than me. so They have a lot of collective memory from Pennsylvania, but for me, everything started in Kansas. What is the breakdown of the three siblings? So, I have two older sisters who one is ten years older than me, one is eight years older than me, and then my brother is six years older than me so um they are very close in age as well they 're each you know just at almost exactly two years apart and then um and then, I came around six years after and it's interesting for so many years I really envied the the close proximity and age that they had, the fact that they were older. Obviously, when you're a kid, you're resentful that like your older siblings get to do all the fun stuff first. But um, in our adulthood, we have, I mean, we've always been close, but we've, we've come considerably closer as, as grownups and they are um, three of my best friends as well as being my siblings. Did you get the sense growing up that you sort of had five parents or were they pretty cool about it? No, I felt like I had um, four parents, being my, my parents, my sisters. And then I had, um, uh, uh, it was, it was like a paradox. My brother was my hero and my bully at the exact same time constantly. <laughs> like he was, I mean, he, he could terrorize me and scare the crap out of me, but he also was like, you know, he walked on water to me as a kid and, um, and he's still a hero to me. You know, we're, he's an amazing guy. What was it about him that you looked up to? He he just has always been a guy who marched to the beat of his own drum. And even though his life pursuits mostly being sports and business and other things that weren't, the, 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 the passions that I ended up pursuing in life, he always did it his own way and always was, you know, um, he's a bit of an oddball. Like, you know, all of our family are kind of weirdos and I love that. <laughs> and he never, um, he never tried to, um, I think, cram that into a box by any means he still is just a, got the goofiest weirdest most inappropriate sense of humor and um who supplied you with the eyeball gene your mom or your dad i think our toxic uh and crazy childhood you were either going to sink or swim my parents god love them um are my mother sadly we lost this year but she was an incredible person my father in many regards an incredible person but their marriage was just a a, a a kettle fire. And it was uh, my dad, very hot tempered, um, very dysfunctional behavior, especially when I was a kid, um, really erratic, um, an intense household to say the least. And my mother, very religious. She was very quiet, kind of in my opinion, just let too much stuff go or kind of gave things up to you know the hope that prayer would work things out. And so we were kind of stuck in this really tense toxic environment where you never knew what you were going to get when you came downstairs in the morning it was either going to be you know one of three things like very rarely was it just baseline calm sometimes it was way up big joy or it was you know battles and 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 fear you were kind of taking that on your own i mean you you were sort of an only child for a while there yeah well what what happened was so i experienced all of that in let's say from consciousness, which what three years old, we start to really take things in, in the sense that I can have vivid memories of stuff through the fifth grade. Um, so, so, so we were all in the house together until let's say maybe fourth grade, my, or, or third grade, my oldest sister went to college, then fourth or fifth grade, my next sister went to college. And then, and then my parents split up in, um, and it was strange. It went from being this house full of people to then when my my, my mom finally you know left my dad and he he also had a difficult time not chasing you know it was it was very um um death of a salesman there was a moment that 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 really landed on my uh consciousness as a young person where i was looking through my dad's briefcase and found it wasn't the uh what was it in death of a salesman it was like the silk uh nighty it was very similar though you it's know i stocking, like, found I the thing like yeah stocking yeah so i found i found the stocking and it was um tra- traumatic but um but needless to say it went from this very full very loud very chaotic house to um just my mom and i but the the, the sense of humor the dark i mean our sense of humor i mean you and i have been friends now for over 10 years, you have a dark sense of humor, but I mean, that's the, the dark sense of humor in our house was the way we survived and we still have it to this day. I mean, after losing my mom this year, it's like the, 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 the kids, you know, we, um, it's how we navigate stuff and it's how we survive. It's strange though. I mean, I never thought about you
0: as being that dark. I, I think about you as being hilarious, but maybe that just shows how dark
1: I am to begin with. <laughs> Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. And and no, I I I mean, positive, definitely. I try. I've i I've, I've Extremely, yeah. survived so much, and I've seen so many miracles in my life. In our family, you know, we weathered the storms, and like for goodness' sake, now we're all still standing. And um, my father uh had ended up going through a number of you know, really toxic, dysfunctional marriages. And I didn't speak to him for many years, but he ended up falling in love with this incredible woman who is my stepmother. And and it's, you know, I, I'm glad we get a chance to talk about this um, during this conversation. So it's, you know, captured for posterity and the annals of recorded um, archiving. But one of the reasons I have the relationship that I have with my father today is because of you. We were backstage during, um, as you like it, and um this would have been in 2007 my dad had his first heart attack he's had a number of health issues over the last 10 12 13 years my god it's yeah i think he had his first heart attack in like 07 and um and i hadn't spoken to him in quite a while and i was very very on the fence about feeling sad that i knew my dad you know was was potentially in a in a in a facing mortality and at the same time still so angry at him for some of the things that I was angry about and um and you put your hand on my shoulder and I'm not going to cry even though we're 10 minutes into this conversation and you said David I'm not going to tell you what to do you're I love you man and I want you to if you can find it in you to reach out have that conversation if you can do it because take it from me I just It's 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 the only advice I'm going to give you, and 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 I, you know, whatever you need to do, you got to do. If you don't want to call the man, don't do it. But I am, I'm just telling you from my heart. And you said it, and you looked me in that in the eyes with those beautiful, beautiful eyes of yours, and you were so sincere, and I felt like you were talking to me from your soul. And I ended up calling, and um, we reconnected, and um, you know, we have a relationship now. I remember
0: that, and I know where that came from. I mean, my my relationship with my father was not dissimilar to your relationship with yours, and my brother-in-law was the one who told me, look, you're going to have to take a lot of this stuff on yourself, but you need to sit down, you need to talk to him before you can't sit down and talk. And I did that, and it made all the difference in the world to me. And the last four or five years of his life, we were best of friends.
1: so awesome. Tell me again, how old were you when your parents got divorced? Fifth grade, they separated with this, you know, kind of, My dad, you know, it was the thing where the flowers were showing up every Friday and it was like he was going to win her back for, that lasted for longer than it should have. I think that went on for another year or two. And then my dad, it was like, I don't know what he was going, midlife, kind of bizarre, like, you know, stuff. And I was not going to his apartment very often, even though I was required to, because our relationship was just so negative and combative. And then, um... My mom kind of just when the divorce happened, and she she also was confronting a lot of her own stuff from her childhood and things that were starting to come up. you know my mom was a a survivor of child sexual abuse, which she didn't she didn't even know she didn't even register until she was in her early fifties it's it was one of these repressed you know scenarios that um that ended up rearing its ugly head generationally with our family, and so she um when she was like, "Oh my God, the same thing is happening now to the next generation at the hands of the same person," she just had this you know wake-up moment, so i I got kind of lost in the shuffle for a minute, John, and it was a really dark time because I was morbidly depressed. I was really struggling with insomnia, and I was very much alone. I didn't have a lot of friends at that time. My siblings were late teen, early 20 folk dealing with a lot of their their own growing up stuff and way out of the house. So they weren't there to take care of me. And um, this one summer approached and I said, I just, I don't want to do baseball anymore. I hated baseball. I was so afraid of getting hit with the ball. And that sounds funny, but I actually like, it was terrifying for me. And I was just, I had a lot of negative connotations of baseball with my father and, and, and just crappy being a kid dealing with a mean dad and baseball stuff. And so I was like, I don't want to do baseball anymore. My mom, my mom said, that's fine. I get it but you're not going to sit in the basement all summer, you know, listening to Halloween records. Um, and so I auditioned for a, um, I auditioned for a community theater production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And that's when I got bit by the, the theater bug in the theater community and the, you know, the, the, the camaraderie of being a part of a family of a production um, of complete strangers, you know, that summer really it, it changed my life. Um, and I found, you know, the magic of, of, of the stage. And you were how old then? So that's the summer before sixth grade, I guess, 11. Wow. You were young. Yeah. And I was at that point, I mean, suicidal ideation was really coming into the picture. And I was in Kansas, mind you, at 11 with a fifth grade teacher who, when I wrote my first suicide note, um, just gave a big unhappy face and wrote this is not funny and i got in trouble for that when i was trying to ask for help i got in major trouble and then when i made a second um i didn't make a second attempt but a second like uh i'm going to do this kind of event that happened um where i was planning to jump off of this uh this this balcony i i my i was sent to what all all my mom knew at that time there was a lot of distrust of self-help and therapy from the evangelical community which i was raised in so i was sent to like a christian counselor who basically gave me scripture for my um prescription and was told that i was you know um i needed to stop masturbating that's not a joke that was that was the that was the treatment i was given
0: were all of these feelings uh, situational or do you think there
1: was a, a chemical aspect to it as well at the time I absolutely believe there was a chemical aspect. I believe that I have um you know a chemical imbalance in my brain and I think that I've had it since I was quite young and I think that um it started to manifest and I think it was um exacerbated and the, the you know the the burner was turned up to high by both the divorce, the confrontation of the abuse, you know, the 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 stuff that my mom was going through watching my parents suffer so much feeling so far away from my siblings um getting bullied i was starting to get bullied a lot i had um i have to this day a skin condition which started to really manifest in fifth and sixth grade and i got a lot of um i suffered a lot of bullying because of that and i um but i had you know one really really good friend who's and we're still super close stood by me constantly i had that new theater community that i found and um but i was at that you know that tricky it's a really dark place for for people who are in that zone where on a very regular basis i felt like i um i wanted to not exist anymore and um and then it it, here's the funny thing john the following summer not that much longer not that much later so around 11 12 doing another community theater production was when I found the magic of the abandoned, uh, beer keg in the garage. Uh, cause I'd be at these parties, you know, uh, every night after shows with grown-ups who were totally wonderful people and respectable. And like, my mom was a little clueless, you know, she'd be sitting in the front room with adults and they'd be singing show tunes and everybody was really wonderful. But I would, I, I was so curious about why everyone was so fascinated with what came out of that tap. And I, uh, I found out and I, and I started, um, I started, you know, drinking in uh, around 12, 11, 12. Yeah. The summer, the summer that I turned 12. What was that giving you that you weren't getting? This, you know, the first, it's like the, the click that Brick talks about in, uh, cat on a hot tin roof. I, that it always resonated with me. The first time I, Got intoxicated, that click, that something that just things came into focus and made sense, and I didn't feel so overwhelmed by anguish. And I got that same click, if you want to call it that, to oversimplify, from thankfully getting further into junior high and then high school, things like sports. I got really involved in sports and running, uh, theater, you know, achieving things artistically. I was, but but it never was really enough. And so, you know, beer became liquor. And then I, I was a pretty savvy, you know, preteen and teen in, in those Kansas days where me and an older friend who was super smart figured out how to manipulate the Kansas driver's licenses. So I started a fake ID business and I was able to get booze at a very young age. Um, and then that <clears throat> just naturally led to, um, pot, uh, which kind of carried me through, through college. And I think all of that was an undiagnosed case of, you know, that a clinical depression, which I, um, which I didn't treat, it wasn't treated properly until I almost lost my life to being an addict because of, I think the way I was treating my my, uh, my, my depression. Do you think you got
0: better and better at hiding what was going on because you started so young? I mean, it, it seems to me that by the time you were really hardcore when you were in in college
1: you must have been extraordinarily good at hiding what was going on that it's a a paradox again i (laughs) another catch-22 where i the, the the more adept i got at hiding what i was um how i was you know coping um the more confident i became in the fact that i you know could exist and thrive and be what would for all intents and purposes, be considered a high achieving and functioning individual entering in society, um, and likely then, not achieving as highly as you thought you were. Sure, but 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 it was like wow, I'm doing I'm doing well, and this is a part of my life that is needed. I absolutely felt that that intoxication on a daily basis was necessary for me to survive and not want to die, and I um, I was. Uh, I was um resigned to the notion that I would live the rest of my life uh that way and at the same time as you know as it, as it, as 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 the saying goes like burning the candle at both ends it was it was ultimately on like a collision course to catch up with me but I but there was there was as as I entered you know I I went from from Kansas where at that point, I wasn't even speaking. I had completely cut off my father. So my mom and I were subsisting on what she was getting in alimony, what she had in savings, and then her, I think, $14,000 a year salary teaching like English as a second language and doing some learning styles, educating that she was doing. But like we were poor. And I wanted to go out of state to college. I wanted to study English. I thought it would be cool to become a, like a, an english maybe a lit um major who you know had a focus in education i was thinking i could go and become a cool like high school english teacher who teach who coaches football and runs a drama program because we had a couple of male role models in my life like that going through junior high and high school who were both you know really cool on in the the, the theater class but also um you know were like the the, our 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 defensive line coach coach king he also ran the drama club in eighth grade and we did antigone together and like i thought i want to be that guy i love those i really look that's huge for a high school kid because you're thinking it's
0: not just the typical sort of uh, stereotype of theater he also has athletics and you know you can be
1: both things yeah and i mean mr Swayze, our high school rep coach or teacher we we had half the football team were the Jets and the Sharks in our, in our senior production of West Side Story, which was so awesome. But, um, but I thought that football was my, my path to college um, as far as economically. And I was getting recruited by some pretty decent, you know, Division two II and three schools. So I was looking at shoring up, um, you know, um, financial aid. And then Kathy McNamara, who's now Kathy Wood, who was my, my speech coach, and Mr. Swayze, the drama teacher, they really encouraged me they said, you've got something with, with your acting. And they, um, they encouraged me to audition for theater programs, even though I, they knew the financial constraints I was facing. And, and I, by a miracle, got um, this incredible scholarship to go up to Chicago, study at DePaul Theater School, entered this intensely, intensely immersive theater conservatory training program where I just got to eat, sleep, you know, and breathe acting. 24-7. And it was incredible, but it was also intensely stressful. And so my having not addressed or dealt with any of my psych issues, um, then being completely on my own and being in the city of Chicago and hanging out with some really cool jazz musicians, um, my my smorgasbord of temptations to to treat the, you know, the, to treat the dragon within um, got manifold and I found the power of opiates by you know my freshman year of college and then that was a 6 year love affair that nearly cost me my life as you know um I was friends with these guys who were honestly it's a cliche they were jazz musicians and they were all um snorting mostly some were slamming um heroin and um I was fascinated by by it all and I um started experimenting with it And as soon as it touched my soon as it touched my 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 central nervous system it was game over i found utter bliss and escape from any sense of um the darkness that haunts me um in in the most unhealthy way because it blanketed everything for the few hours that it was in full effect and and then ultimately as it would start to wear off then you know then then the feelings of despair and darkness obviously get just just incrementally deeper every single time until years into it you're so terrified of coming down that um and i was able again john to function in the most bizarrely highly functional way i was what would have been considered a very successful student at depaul and i loved theater training i loved the work i worked my ass off i i read every play i could get my hands on i saw every production i could see I really did my drugs very early in the morning or very late at night, just to maintain my, 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 my. I guess uh, survival, you know. Well, that's that's
0: what um, when I mentioned earlier about getting good at hiding this from having started drinking at the age of eleven. I mean, considering how competitive that environment was and how incredibly close knit a, a theater situation is, you, it's really hard to hide that kind of stuff from from people around you. And I assume that it wasn't necessarily the other theater students that were doing this. So they weren't sort of sharing the secret with you, but right. They
1: were not, you must have just been acting 24 seven. Yeah, I was. And I was, um, I was, uh, I mean, we could ask, you know, I I haven't talked to him about it. I mean, John, our, our mutual friend, John Hoganacker, among many other people that we know in common, but he was there throughout the whole ride. But I'd say for years, he probably just thought Dave's just, a little out there and strange, but nobody knew what I was actually doing on a daily basis, because the people that I interacted with on that front were a totally separate, very removed from my theater world. you know my my using community, which is uh, its own thing was um was very specific, and that was all it was all very well coordinated by me until it couldn't be anymore, right around the time I was getting out of school um and i couldn't maintain for for too for too long before i was just full time um scamming stealing and uh ended up living you know homeless for a while
0: that's what surprised me i saw a uh, when i was doing a little bit of research for this one of the videos i saw was you making a a speech in front of some sort of a rally about the struggles that you've had with addiction and, 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 what you've been through. Because when I first met you, I, I wouldn't have had a clue. And I, I, I mean, I met you when
1: you were past. Yeah. You met uh, me when I was about five years, uh, clean and right. at, you met me right as my acting career was starting again. Cause basically I got clean in 2002, but then it took me three to four years of just living this very simple life in Chicago, in Uptown. I worked a day job for Time Life and at night at a movie theater, Webster Place Cinema. And I would um, just, I was was so grateful that I had a futon and a DVD player and uh, some Totino's pizzas in the freezer, that I actually had life again. And I was starting to actually do therapy and I was starting to you know, talk to a psychiatrist, and I was starting to do all the work that came along with my journey of of sobriety. And then I started to really follow through with it and started to do the work. And um, and then I found, you know, uh, you know, anti went through an antidepressant sp- range of, you know, a, a work with with the with with the with the doctor and um, found what continues to be a growing and evolving, you know, treatment process for my from my mind and body. But at that time that I met you, I was five years clean because I was in 07 when I met you. And I had spent about three years just working on just being clean, just literally getting up, going to work and, and proving to myself that I could live without. And I was doing it, dude. I was like so grateful. And I was writing a ton. In fact, I was writing what would become Animals as more of a short story or a novella before it became a screenplay. But then um. My friends Jennifer Shook, who is a Chicago theater director, and Jimmy McDermott, Chicago theater director, both were like, "You come be in a come be in our plays." They were they were directing shows in Chicago um, storefront theater productions, and I was so terrified that it would break my heart if I went back to acting and it was and I wasn't good anymore s- sober, or if I couldn't handle the stress or pressure of acting sober. So I really very 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 fearfully finally tried to face the fear and 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 muster the courage to get back on stage and it was a beautiful experience and then um the ball started to roll and um people started you know yeah you had sold yourself that illusion that in order to be creative you had to be wasted in some way both to be creative and to survive and sustain through the uh the self loathing self doubt self everything that we do when you're an actor like that that also freaked me out like having to get back into facing rejection and facing all of the negativity that can come along with with the dream of acting i was terrified that like you know how many how many big roles am i going to lose out on or how many amazing auditions are going to fall on you know To to nothingness and before I get really resentful again or upset again. Was it hard to come back into that environment? I mean, had you gotten to the point prior to
0: that that you had sort of destroyed friendships or destroyed connections? Did you, did you think about going somewhere else rather than staying in the same place where you had had so much trouble?
1: I thought I had, I was, that was another thing. I was terrified. I was so embarrassed and so ashamed about my past that I was certain that no one would ever want to work with me again. No one would, in fact, Michael Halberstam, you know, who who ran the theater where you and I got to meet, he Writers theater, he yeah. knew me in my junky days, and I was certain he would never let me come around. Or um, my dear friends, people, you know, you, the, the the mental tricks that, that people can play on themselves. For me, people like Hoganak or McDermott, and dozens of other people who truly, dearly, sincerely loved me. I was sure I had burned the bridges too deeply or I had just let people down in so many ways and um and even casting directors you know David O'Connor saw me at a um I was doing um for Jimmy McDermott doing his uh his sketchbook you know 10 minute play and and O'Connor came up to me afterwards and I was afraid he was going to say something like I don't know what I thought he was going to say, but he was just like, I thought you were, I think he literally said like, I heard you died or like, I thought you were wow. dead. And I'm so glad you're back. Like you should come in for an audition. And my old agents, Todd Torina at um, Stewart Talent, yeah. uh, Jenny Wilson Armstrong at Stuart, they were all so supportive of me, you know, um, coming back. And uh, I just had to take that leap as I have many times in my life. It's like you take that leap and then, and then you're, you're so afraid of how it's going to be a catastrophe but you land okay and then um it's funny i mean it's it's sort of the same thing that happened to you when you were
0: 11 i mean you found that caring artistic community that could bring you through
1: absolutely absolutely and it was i was just so fortunate and blessed because at the time that i got back in and then you know o'connor had me come in and i got really lucky and booked a um a tv commercial In his office which then afforded me the ability to just focus on being an actor by 2007 i'd say i was full-time acting and um was this a series of wendy's commercials that you booked the first thing was um it led to the wendy's commercial but the first thing he booked me it was actually in the fall of oh six it was a commercial for singular wireless and it was um a young man who's on the phone to his father-in-law and they're joking around and i say um Can I call you Jim, Jimbo, Jimmy Boy, Jimmy Crapcorn? I don't care. And the the call drops. And so I think that the father-in-law hates my joke. And really, he's laughing, but I think he hates me. And the guy who directed it, his name is Chris Smith. He had directed one of my favorite films. It still is of all time called American Movie. He was this really accomplished indie filmmaker who directed commercials um, to pay the bills. And he and I... Had a, we totally fell in love with each other and loved working together. And so he continued to cast me in his commercials, including that that series I did, you know, uh, two years of uh, uh, like a, a guarantee contract with Wendy's, which Chris um, was, that was his, those were his commercials. Um, and Chris also being a notable winner of Sundance Film Festival and a number of other, I mean, he's a really re, highly regarded filmmaker. He he um, was one of our producers for Animals because he loved that script so much that he having for me to be able to have him saying that he was backing up that film really helped me to get it made. So just that one gig led to sort of all gig. those yeah. threads with that same person. Isn't that, I mean, it's, that's how our business can be though at times, right? It's so interesting when I think about sometimes like... Um, if you're just so fortunate to find that director or that producer or that collaborator who you really connect and, and, and gel with and and it goes, why, it goes right, um, that can sometimes turn into lifelong uh, relationships, you know? It's always
0: about who you know, but it's also about what you bring when you get there. I mean, we, we all know people who have gotten their foot in the door and then just burned their foot off. Sure. I did that in the past, yeah. Now we keep talking about animals, we should talk a little more about what that is. Was that your first full script that you wrote yourself?
1: Yes, I worked on it the, the we we shot probably the seventy fifth draft of that script, but I had started working on it in like oh four o five as a short story it became it wanted to be a novella, then I thought maybe a graphic novel and basically it's a it, it turned into a screenplay, and I studied screenplay by reading all the screenplay books I could check out at the Chicago Public Library and also reading interviews with my favorite you know filmmakers and um reading other scripts um i mean this this was more than just a screenplay though this was
0: this was ripping your heart open and showing the world what you'd been through i mean i I didn't realize until i uh, the reason i brought up earlier you making that speech was i didn't realize just how accurate or how true to life the Animals script was but what you described in that speech that i saw was basically the 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 entire script of animals is is
1: what you lived Absolutely. I lived, um, I wanted to write a fictional film because I didn't want to be like, this is my, you know, the the biopic, the David Desmolchins story. But at the same time, they always say, write what you know. I know addiction. I know addiction. I mean, it's, it's found its way into everything I've written, be it, you know, family dramas, a horror film, or, you know, animals, a movie like that, you know, a, a love story to me. I wanted to write a love story about that really murky place that you can find yourself in when you're in love with somebody but you just don't know when you should abandon ship and when you should, you know, batten down the hatches and stick it out and I and so I started writing and and I mean like the the scene that you're in um so everybody who's listening John it does an incredible job in our film and um there's a scene where um I'm not going to argue with you but I'll just let it go so good um Bobby uh Kim Shaw's character just tricks you out of, um, you know, was it 400 bucks maybe? I forget. It's $400. Yeah. thanks. And, um, that's, that is one of the things that I totally invented for the, the the script because I wanted to demonstrate how smart these characters were and their wasted potential. But I lived in a car. I slept in a car. I went, went through many of the, like the scam, the 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 prostitute scam was actually these two friends of mine who I um who I was in the car sometimes when they would pull off they 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 would pull off these scams where they'd go into like sh- you know the the, the north the north shore suburbs they'd have put ads in the back of the reader for like call girl ads and then they would you know this girl who was very attractive um, she was probably twenty at the time we'd go sit in the parking at the driveway of these fancy houses and she'd go to the front door and tell the men you have to give me half up front that i'll give my pimp and then you get we get the second half when we're done and half of three thousand dollars or however much she was telling them it was going to be was still a lot and they take that half and we just take off and um so that all that stuff found its way into the script um was there any sense of of fear when you were doing these things
0: or were you so focused on the eventual goal that it just wasn't in the equation
1: horrifying john horrifying i still get stomach aches sometimes when i think about like taking a stack of you know cds and laser discs uh tucking them under my jacket you know at like the tower records that used to be on clark um i like i don't know how many times i shoplifted in there and then would go to like you know, you know, pawn shops or whatever and sell stuff. I, we, the, I, 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 I walked into, um, you know, if you walked by, was, was, was driving by a church and you saw there was a wedding happening, it was painfully easy to steal gifts off of gift tables at weddings. And you knew you were usually getting something that was going to trade well at a pawn shop. Like, how is it so easy for you to talk about this? But for most people, this would be something they would take to their grave. Well, I'll tell you, so I wanted to take it to my grave because let's say I got clean in 2002. I did speaker meetings for like NA, NAA, where you speak in front of a group of people, but that's a small, private, anonymous organization, right? With Um, people who have been through similar situations. Exactly. So then I got to 2013 is when we finally went to make the movie Animals. So that's 11 years into my sobriety at this point. I am so keeping my secret under lock and key that I'm paranoid that if it ever gets out, this building acting career that I've got going is going to be demolished because no one's going to want to hire a guy who they know could potentially turn into a junkie. Not to mention any of my mental health issues ever getting out. I was really afraid of that as well. The fact that I had Attempted suicide a number of times that I'd been committed, you know, to institutions. All that you think is going to a embarrass yourself, your family, but also how could that affect my ability to be an actor? You know, or people's willingness to hire me. So that was me being like, "Zip it up! I don't want anybody to know." Then we start making animals, and I've got a production designer, an art director, a director, an actor, a lead actress. Um. Uh, my entire entire group of people making that film, not a single one of them had any experience with hard drugs. I think one person had like tried cocaine at one time, but like none of them, some, most of them had barely even smoked pot. So I had to host like drug school for these people and sit down and like walk them through this. So, so it starts to become a conversation of like, oh, you actually like, and then, and then, Talking to our AD and our production designer and our director, Colin, who's a dear friend of mine, you know, showing them oh, safely, yeah. the places where I had been and why the locations were important. And Eve, who so was my. Oh, yeah, None of these people knew this was your story? Colin did. But then Mary Pat Bentel, our producer, Chris Smith, our other producer, they knew because we had started to talk about it. Mary Pat said, I, I wish for your sake that you felt, you know, not so insecure about it. And I would just shut it down every time Mary Pat would bring it up. Eve, my incredible wife, um, we had been together at this point, you know, three and a half years when we went to go make animals. And Eve, who doesn't work in film, came and helped by building props for us and being an uh, art director just to to help out because it was kind of a everyone was working for free from my end. And she and I were like, well, what do we care? We don't have a kid. We can make a movie and not get paid for five months. And then we ended up finding we we're pregnant while we were making animals, which was hilarious. But um, she, um, she sat me down at one point and she was like, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I really wish that you could be as proud of yourself as all of us are at like what you've accomplished and that you are now a you know 11-year clean former heroin addict who has an ability to reach people and give them, you know, hope and inspiration if you can talk about this. And with this film coming out, it gives you an opportunity to do so. And I, it was like that day talking to you in the, um, in the dressing room at writer's theater where she looked so, uh, just like sincerely into, into me when she said it, that I, it, it, it moved me, and it gave me this added uh oomph of courage and It was very, very soon, maybe even the next day after that conversation, that a writer from the Chicago Tribune uh came to set. They wanted to visit the set and write an article about this movie that was shooting in the uptown neighborhood and you know talking about how we were incorporating this this community into our filmmaking process and um nina metz who is a great writer for the tribune she and i walked around the neighborhood in uptown on a lunch break and she turned to me at one point and said this movie sounds fascinating what inspired you to write it and i had this like you know crossroads moment where i was standing there on you know wilson avenue i think right at the corner of magnolia and wilson and i looked around and i thought all right david This is for the record. This is going to the Chicago Tribune. And I just started talking. And my story came out and it felt fucking great, man. It felt so liberating and it felt so um, meaningful. And I felt like, um, and in the years since, for all the different people that I've been able to come in contact with or talk to or be able to help in sharing my story it's, I'm never able to like sit down and actually like give anybody the kind of advice that they want to hear or like that they, but I think it's been fantastic because if I've helped anybody in any way, it's just showing that it's absolutely real. It's absolutely possible. I'm now, you know, it's 2020. So I'm 18 years into this thing and, um, it's for real, you know, miracles are real. It really, it it really can happen. Did you leave that
0: interview and go back to the set and sort of bring out a new you to them, or did you sort of let that trickle out as, as things went
1: along? No, I, w- well, I went back and I immediately found Eve and I told her what had happened. And then Colin came over and Mary Pat was there and uh, Amanda Flieger, a bunch of other people that we were working on the film with. And, and, and I kind of said how my heart was still racing because I had just spilled this big bag of beans and everybody was so supportive and encouraging of me and i um and then of course we got so very lucky because while we were shooting animals um i had worked on a film earlier in the year prisoners um and that came out while we were filming and it it really helped me as an actor it ended up leading creating a path for me to get some work because we got back to la even i had no idea how we were going to have any money to have a kid with and um Meanwhile, guys spent like all the money you had in the world on animals basically. Yeah, yeah, and we and we had nothing to begin with. So like we were um I mean, we were really freaking out and thank God a lot of wonderful, you know, blessings came our way after we went and, and made this film. But Colin and our editor Amanda, they went up to Milwaukee, which is where Chris Smith has a post studio. He had an office, and so they cut the movie sent it to south by southwest uh for our submission a very rough cut and we got in as you know and so then within a few months i was in austin texas doing a full i'd never done a press circuit like that before where i was going you know from table to table room to room talking to every like wire service and and the story just it it became like something i felt so comfortable talking about that um here i am today with you telling you know well yeah i mean compared to most
0: addicts when 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 you opened up about you know your story you opened up about your story it it, it was it was everywhere
1: yeah yeah and i um <laughs> that's 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 got to be a relief but also has to be somewhat
0: terrifying
1: well sure and also i'm just now getting to know my future wife's family who are like okay our daughter has moved from our, our daughter's moved from new york california She's with an actor. Oh, great! Who wants to hear that? And then she's—they're pregnant before they even had their real wedding. We went and got married at you know a Daily Plaza Courthouse. That's how we had our—that's how we tied the knot. And, hey, and that's what like, we did too. It worked great. Yeah, it worked out, man. Um, her family's so awesome and supportive of me. But like, when the movie premiered for Oscilloscope, um, in New York. I went and Eve and Colin and everybody was back in LA because it opened in like 12 theaters maybe at the same time so I was in New York and I was sitting with Eve's family who are watching this movie for the first time and I was just like that was the most that was the most uncomfortable to like they're they're probably just sitting there going like so this is uh this is your this is uh well okay yeah, right.
0: you're you're locked in the bathroom <laughs> of a diner shooting up or trying to <laughs> in, in 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 not the most appropriate parts of your body that must have been squirmy. me.
1: Oh, boy. That was real. Uh, That's a horror of being an addict and being a needle addict, in fact, is the fact that your veins just start to fail because you've, you've just, you know, overused them so much. And you have to find parts of your body where you can finally start to get clean injections again. And um, shooting that scene, John, as an actor, from one actor to another, I will tell you, I had an epiphanal moment because... Rightly so, Eve, Colin, and all these other people who came to realize how personal this story was to me, that was the first scene we shot of me actually interacting with paraphernalia and and recreating the drug using, and people were very... This, cons- this
0: scene, for those who haven't seen it, where you, you and, and your girlfriend have, you know, you have to find a place to, to use, and you're in a diner, and you go into the bathroom, and you're having an extraordinary amount of trouble
1: successfully uh shooting up yeah yeah and it's like my foot my ankle um and it's there's a there's some humor in that scene but um those moments and and that that scene in particular and then another one we shot soon after where i'm where i'm stuck in a car and i'm um And I'm having to try and find a vein, and it's taking so long. And when I finally do, you realize that the the stuff that we bought is actually bogus, and we got ripped off. Um, Shooting scenes like that, having Eve and everybody else so nearby, and and they'd yell, cut, they would run up to check on me and and say, are you okay? Which I really appreciated. But the the reality was, that was, you know how I told you I was nervous about getting back to acting. Um, If there was ever a test... I faced a lot of them that year because I was wondering like what would trigger or what would really like send me into a dark place and the skills, the tools, the technique, and the, um, the craft for lack of a better term without sounding cheesy of being an actor are the things that I love so much about acting and sitting in that, in that bathroom, in that diner, or in that car with that, you know, with the needle and the and the fake drugs and the the spoon and the sweat and the trying to make sure you're finding the light and hitting the mirror just right and showing the camera you know the the expression that you need to, and then having to do it over and over again, it was fucking liberate. It felt so great to feel like, oh man, I don't have to go to some place in my mind. I don't have to just remember. I take myself back to that place no i'm thinking about i'm juggling so many so many balls in the air right now and it, and it and it felt great and i think it was um i'm 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 proud of the acting that i was able to do in those sequences
0: you know that that's 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 amazing because i mean it, it's it's not easy to watch it's it's not easy to 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 experience and you know i had a similar reaction watching that film that i had to watching the other film you wrote all creatures here below um the last 15 minutes of all creatures here below without giving anything away is some is 15 of the most difficult minutes i've ever had to watch on screen it's just it's and it there's there's no sense watching you of Oh, there's someone who's trying to hit his light. There's someone who's trying to find his mark. There's someone who's wondering if the camera's pulling in on him. There's, you know, it, it, it's, it's all there. So uh, maybe you're thinking that, but
1: nobody else is. Thanks, man. Well, don't you think though that's the, um, and thank you for saying that. And by the way, yeah, that last 15 minutes of um all creatures here below is why Pixar is beating my door down now to write the next kids. Um, it's like, a gift, David. It's a gift. The the reality is, we we come from the stage, and the idea for me of I can lie and say that like when I was playing Tom Wingfield or doing you know the Glass Menagerie or whatever, and I had to stand there and and deliver dialogue or monologues every night uh, with you know finding making something new, exciting, fresh all the magic that comes in with that there's still technical realities i oh god we we have so many wonderful people we got to work with you and i and i mean just in that one show alone i mean i learned so much from william brown my god bill brown oh yeah who directed us in our show and so many of the cast and that were so amazing but i i don't know if you ever got to work with steve scott um not as a director no he he directed me in um uh this really cool production we did of buried child at shattered globe and i remember there was this mirror um on the wall that i was trying to use as my character because i wanted to see into the infinitium of like my my ancestors and blah 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 i had this whole thing that i'd like cooked up and it was like for the technical needs of of this, of the of what was happening with the play, and because another actor who is much shorter than I am needed the mirror to be much lower, because she actually has dialogue that directly references that mirror and needs to adjust her hat in it or whatever. He needed to move the freaking mirror, and I remember being so, I was so so mad. I can't believe I did this. That I like, I was like, I need a break. And I like walked out to like the fire escape and like had a cigarette and. And Steve, which I quit four years ago, by the way. Um, and congratulations! Steve, thank you, Steve. Like, came outside. He's such an awesome guy, and he was so sweet. But he talked me through like that. Te- those technical moments where it's like, who gives a flying f what I'm thinking in my mind, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, what I'm oh, am I really there? Quote unquote. Who gives a f because I'm not there to service my needs. I'm there so that the audience can absolutely believe what I'm saying and expressing them is real is clear that they hear it and that they see it and they feel it right so that's what matters and he made me believe that what I was doing and the way I was using my body and my voice and my face and interacting with my scene partner in that scene and the way that he needed me to to move my body which felt unnatural to me because it didn't seem like it was right for what I was experiencing my internal psychology didn't matter for shit. What mattered was he was sitting in the back row and he's like, you've got to trust me. I've been doing this for decades and I'm promising you, take my word for it. It works great. And I came to love and embrace that feeling of wanting to be that kind of actor where if you know you tell me that picking up the cup of coffee on this line and taking a sip when you need me to because I trust you and you're my director and it actually emphasizes a beat that you need to, 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 to happen... And yet I'm thinking psychologically, well, my character wouldn't want to take a sip of this coffee dinner, but, but I'm a, who gives a fuck what David thinks? That's not what matters.
0: And, well, and that, that must have translated so incredibly well to all the film work that you've done, because I mean, you're just, you're just a cog in that machine. I mean, you know, if, if the camera has to be here, the camera has to be here. You can't say, no, can you put the camera there? Because I really want to see this. Oh,
1: John trust me, they do sometimes. And it baffles me that the, what some actors will say, because I'm also thinking like, I wish every actor had to have training or experience in the theater. It kills me to see like crew members go out of their way to try and avoid what is called my eye line, which means like my direction of where I'm looking. Right. You'll see like these guys go, I'm so sorry. I have to be in your eye line. And I'm like, who gave all these people PTSD Being they've been yelled at so many times by actors for standing in their line of sight. When I'm thinking, you know, how many times I had to stand and deliver a soliloquy to three old women having a (laughs) gossip session (laughs) while opening their candies, you know, in Glencoe or whatever. Like, who cares, man? I hear
0: hear people saying, you know, uh, to to actors, especially actors who have done some of the films that you were in, they say, you know, there's so much green screen work. There's so much CGI. How can you just act to a tennis ball on a stick? I'm like,
1: that's acting. <laughs> if, if you're doing a play, there's no fourth wall. There's, I mean, what, this is not, come do you, on. Do you hate, do you hate green screen? I'm like, no, that's like saying, do you hate theater? Because I had to stare right. at it a bunch of like, I'm sorry to say, but there's a lot of faces. Like if you, if you cannot, if you get derailed by the people who look bored as hell when you're trying to give your soul to them on a, like, Sunday matinee, you're or straight, are sleeping, are literally sleeping or literally arguing with their spouse because they're trying to tune into the Cubs game, which happened to me numerous times. They have like little earphone pieces, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But you know what? That's not going to stop you and me from you know having a wonderful encounter in the woods. And as you like it, it's not going to stop you know Larry Ando from staring deep into the abyss, you know, and and delivering his Jay Quis speech. It's not going to I. Oh, I saw so many great performances when I was in um, Chicago. But I loved the way he delivered that speech, man. That was such a guy That was oh, so dreamy. I know. That was it, so dreamy. Was,
0: that's one of my favorite moments. Getting to, getting to say the lines that led into that speech, and just say, standing there every night and watching him. And you know, one of my other favorite moments in in that in that production was the uh, the period of time where. Um, in rehearsal, you were being directed to pretend that you were repelling out of a helicopter wearing a little aviator hat with goggles on it and had to get it in my face to tell me what was going on and not I, I don't even know if we ever made eye contact in that scene because I could not keep a straight face. You looked like Snoopy, for God's sake.
1: I did. I looked like Snoopy. God love that. It was so rad, man. It's like I got airdropped air into the forest at the end of the show, and I got to deliver that final bit of very important information. About very important. Happened. You were the yep. Deus Ex Machina. I was. I was straight from the chopper. Um, man, Robbie Lehman. I mean, God, that cast was so great. Wow. It really was. I miss Chicago theater, man. I would love to come back and do a show with you at some point. Do you miss theater? I mean, when was the last time you did something on stage? You know, my friend Angela uh, did these really wonderful adaptations of Shakespeare for, for all ages, and they were these short, I think the plays ran all of 30 or 40 minutes, but we did them here when I first moved to L.A. And, and then over the years, I've gone back twice. To Chicago to do ten-minute short plays, so I did get to go on stage with um, collaboration. Anthony Mosley had me back to do um, the final sketchbook, which I co-wrote with a wonderful actor writer from Chicago, Aisha June. We did a piece which we never rehearsed in person; we rehearsed completely through Zoom and over the phone. And we're on stage at the Goodman the night we premiered because I had to come straight from. It's crazy, dude. I worked all night the night before in Atlanta, flew to Chicago, went straight to a set, worked on a movie all day, and then came downtown to the Goodman, met her backstage. We ran our lines for like an hour. And then we went on stage and we had everything blocked in our mind. It was amazing. And then I did one at the, um, uh, another one of the collaboration sketchbooks at the, uh, what's it called? Um, at the wonderful theater over in, um, uh, Wicker Park, uh, shoot Chopin at the Chopin, but that's it. I mean, I'm 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. Um, you know, uh, Shattered Globe allowed me to do a workshop of a play that I wrote. Um, but that was, you know, me just sitting for table reads mostly. And, um, you're a company member at Shattered Globe. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Globe. Um, there was—he's not no longer at the company, but at one of the best uh, scenic designers in town, Kevin Hagen, also was directing for Shattered Globe when he was their artistic director. And I did a string of shows with Kevin. We did Suddenly last summer, which was incredible. We did um, the Glass Menagerie, which really changed my life. Um, he and, and and there was this whole s- string of shows that I was so fortunate I got to do. Um, Steve Scott, we did a uh, uh, Buried Child, um, but but yeah, I'm. I'm forever indebted to those guys, man, that um, I really love Shattered Globe. And it's amazing. They're st- they're still going, man. And, and it's nice being out here in Los Angeles. And when you talk to fellow actors or directors or anybody in the film side of things who hears that you're from Chicago, they really do love, they always want to hear stories about the, the experiences I had in the theater in Chicago. And um, there's a level of great respect that I feel like I get from people just automatically when they know that um that i came from that world and it's it's an honor you know and i i I, and i think that they it comes with for them a level of expectation that i am going to be willing to leave it all on the field and that i'll bleed uh you know and i'll you know that's just what chicago actors are known for like giving 1000 percent. well i guarantee you live up to that expectation every single time
0: there are eight Thousand other things I would love to talk to you about, not the least of which is every single movie you've ever done. But for now, let me thank you for being my first guest. And I hope that you are willing to come back and
1: discuss uh, some of the other fun things you've been doing. Oh, man, I would love this. It's so nice to talk to you, friend. Uh, thanks again for, you know, letting me be a part of this with you. And um, I'm so glad we've stayed in touch over these years. And I um, I love you very much. Thanks, man. I love you too, brother. It means a lot. David Desmaltz and everyone.
0: I think at this point in the podcast, I'm supposed to say, leave a comment or click like, or mention us on Facebook or tell everybody, you know, or send me a million dollars. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. Basically, all I want from you for now is that you come back every couple of weeks and listen to another conversation and hopefully you like it. Uh, Oh, right. Time for the credits. The Art in Yourself is produced at Double Vanity Studios. The cover art was done by Touchstone Graphic Design. The cover photo was taken by Joe Mazza at Brave Lux. The theme music was composed by J.Q.N. Musique. I'm John Lister, and I'll talk to you later.